Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and today is a very special day. We have a special guest producer, Matt. Been a while. It has been a while, man. It's been since like 2014 or something. Yeah, and Matt is one half of uh, stuff they don't want you to know. One third. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's three of them. Yeah. And we are uh, sort of awkwardly recording two of the same shows they've done. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt's just sitting there with his arms crossed, shaking his head back and forth. So we're trying not to look at him. How you doing? I'm good, except for Matt looking at us like that. Uh, what'd you do for the eclipse? I looked at the eclipse unwisely. Um, from where? From my house. Oh, I'm I didn't, surprised. I didn't see a full... The full schmo. I, f- I figured you guys would be exactly the type to drive two hours. No. To see it. No, you did though, huh? Yeah. How was it? Well, I don't want to be one of those dudes, but the difference between 99% and full eclipse is all the difference in the world. I saw it put, I can't remember who put it, but they said that the difference between seeing a partial eclipse and a full eclipse is the difference between kissing a person and marrying a person. Oh, well, that's from the legendary Eclipse article from The Atlantic from 1982. Oh, okay. Who wrote it? Oh, man. Um, I even like sent myself the link to read it today, and I haven't read it. It's probably Tina Turner. That no, was at the height of her career. It was, uh, it was written by Annie Dillard. Okay. It's called Total Eclipse, and I haven't read it yet, but it's supposed to be... <laughs> Just remarkable, and that's exactly how she put it. And it was 1982. I think so. So that would have been a year before Bonnie Tyler came out with Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> yeah, it was 1982. Wow. Um, yeah, I cried, uh, and like <clears throat> five other people with this cried. That's cool. Like spontaneously, tears were coming out of my face, and I was like, "Really? Surprised. What is happening to my body?" Yeah. Did you? I mean, what what have you concluded? I don't know, man. It was just overwhelming. That's neat to stare at the corona, and we're going like probably texas for the next one like i'm going to every (laughs) path of totality that i can get to between now and the time that i die you're an eclipse head now i'm a totaliter oh gotcha (laughs) totalit totalitist totalitist (laughs) yeah and it was we almost didn't go like literally that morning we were debating and i was like it's two hours away let's just get in the car and go that's very cool um and my daughter saw it yeah which was weird for her like she knew something was up yeah. Even at two years old. Yeah, the sun's gone black. Yeah, and stars came out and crickets chirped and it was just really strange. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, yeah, it was a very quick two minutes. But I think the one in 2007 is going to have like a four and a half minute totality. When is it? 2000 what? Seven years from now. What did I say? Oh, 2024? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it well, goes, geez, if it's that great, maybe we'll drive to Texas, too. We'll all drive together. It, well, if you won't drive two hours, why are you going to go to Texas? <laughs> oh, well, hey, if I ever have a good reason to go to Texas, I'll take it. Well, it's Texas, and then, uh, I mean, we may go to Akron, because that's where Emily's from. It goes through Akron. Oh, really? And then kind of over to Maine. I see. Uh, so on that You guys should plane. just follow it in your van. Well, you know, I wondered what, how fast, of course you can't do this, but how fast would you have to travel? The speed of the moon? Stay in the path of totality. The speed of the moon. Which is what? Like a hundred million miles an hour <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Listen to our moon episode. It's my new drug, totality. That's neat, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that happened to you. It happened on me. Got all, get all over me. 
Uh, how okay? You want to talk about this? The eclipse? No. You know what's funny is that we didn't do it. Podcasts on eclipses. No, I thought about that. We never have. I know, and it's just, just like us. Moon goes in front of sun. Moon goes away from sun. <laughs> it goes up. It goes down. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, that's just figures. I'm sure we'll end up talking about like we'll do an episode on on like the effect of an eclipse on plants first, and then yeah, you know, some other tangentially related episode, right. and then maybe after that we'll do how eclipses work. Maybe in, if we're still around in seven years. There you go. How about that? It's a good idea. And I've jinxed us before by saying we won't be around, which is an opposite jinx. I was going to say, is that a jinx? Well, yeah, that's to ensure that we will be around. Gotcha. Yeah. Smart. Thank you. So uh, we're talking today, Chuck, about a pretty uh, unusual mystery. Are you familiar with this one before? Yeah, we. I think we covered this in an internet roundup or something. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, uh, we definitely talked about it, but it, I scoured our archives and... Couldn't find an official show, so I wonder where it came up. Because yeah, I mean, we've known you blogged about, about it. it, yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, and then it was a lot of times you would do one of your uh, best things you've read this week. Mm. We would then do a internet roundup piece on that. Oh, okay, that's probably where it came up then. Because you're like, this is so good, it should be seen by dozens of people. Right, exactly. <laughs> I want to share it with the twenty. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I would probably guess the article that I did the best stuff we've read this week on would have been the body on Somerton Beach, I think is what it was called. It was a Smithsonian article from years and In years fact, ago. It was. Um, so yeah, there have been plenty of good articles about it. That one, uh, is a good one. There's one from, uh, California Sunday magazine called, um, The Lost Man. There's yeah. just some good stuff out there if this floats your boat. It does. But let us set, let us set the theme for you. Okay. Cause this story takes place in Adelaide in, uh, South Australia, which is not just a place. It's a state as well. Did you know that? Yeah. I wonder what they call how they pronounce Adelaide there. Uh, probably not like I just said it. No. Um, but in Adelaide, South Australia, Adelaide's the capital. Uh, it's a, from what I understand, we haven't been there yet, but we probably will maybe next year. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to Adelaide though. I don't know. It sounds kind of neat and creepy, a little weird, right? <laughs> but weird in some weird ways. Yeah. So, um, Adelaide is this, this place that's kind of known as the murder, murder capital of Australia, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have necessarily like the highest homicide rate in Australia. It just has a, a history of kind of weird, gruesome, grisly murders. Yeah. I think if you've had more than two or three, like, dismemberment type murders then right. you're on the map. Sure. And they definitely have. Yeah. There was um there was a very famous case in the 60s of the um the Beaumont children yeah who went missing off of a beach called uh, Glenelg Beach. I think that's probably how you say it. Um which is near Adelaide and uh were never heard from again. No trace of them was ever found. Unsolved. We should do an episode on that one too. Yeah. Um there was the family. Yeah. Uh, so dubbed by the cops in the 70s and 80s. This one's really freaky. Yeah. These were supposedly just like regular uh, professional men, presumed men. Right. Who had a sort of cabal of torture and murder. Right. Of young boys. Basically like season one of True Detective, but in real yeah, life sure. in Australia. Yeah. With a, well, with an equally weird ending right 
Yeah, the sky just opens up. <laughs> it's a total eclipse. Uh, and that one again unsolved, right? Uh, it or was never, of. it was, I think one person was convicted, yeah. but the, the people that he implicated were never charged or, or convicted. What about this bodies in the barrel thing? That's all you need to say. <laughs> okay. There's a string of, of murders called the bodies in the barrels murders. Right. It's a lot of pluralization. It is. Uh, and then, um, so the idea that the one we're talking about, which is the death of just one man, Mm-hmm. A nonviolent death, possibly. Yeah. Um, who was found on a beach almost 70 years ago for that to still have Australia and like the world in its grips today. It must be a pretty interesting case. Agreed. And it is. Yeah. So, uh, I guess we should go back in time, get in the old way back machine and travel, uh, south to Adelaide, mm-hmm. post war Adelaide. Yeah. 1948. how beautiful it is here it's hot i smell shrimp cooking on the barbie yeah i'm drinking a fosters yeah it's like a 55 gallon drum of fosters and lots of other australian tropes are happening all around me yep there's a a crocodile dundies over there (laughs) boy they're when we tour there they're gonna really get sick of us like after the show the first show they're gonna run us out of town yeah say fine new zealand wants us yeah and new zealand will say yeah come on over here uh, so Adelaide is, um, well, it's an interesting place post-war. Um, apparently there was, uh, it was kind of a place where you could go to sort of re, if you want to disappear and rewrite your life, yeah, that wasn't a bad place to do it. Right. Um, there was a lot of black marketeering going on. Yeah. Apparently it was really hard to get your hands on a car. Um, so there was like a big black market for cars of really? all, of all stolenness. All levels of stolen. Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's just a, a certain amount of post-war scarcity that was still going on. And there was a lot of espionage going on too. Yeah. Right. So the Cold War had just started and Australia was in this weird position where there were a lot of Soviet spies running around. There were a lot of Brits and American spies running around. Yeah. And the British themselves were conducting secret rocket tests in the country. So. There was um there was a lot of espionage, a lot of black marketing, um, and a lot of people who were not who they claimed to be Ooh. floating around this country. Running around and floating. Right. So that brings us to uh, a very important date for this story. Uh, Tuesday, November 30th, 1948, uh, about seven in the evening, there was a jeweler named John Lyons and his wife. And they were taking a little stroll there on Somerton Beach, which I'm sure is lovely. Yep. Um. And they saw something weird. They were walking toward uh, Glenelg. So I guess they're connected beaches. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And they saw something interesting on the seawall there. They mm-hmm. saw a man uh, lying in the sand, but very well dressed in a suit, kind of propped up on the seawall there as if he were sort of sitting up uh, about 60 feet away uh, in America. That's 20 yards. <laughs> in Australia, it is a certain amount of meters. About 20 meters. Oh, okay. Really? Is that how it works? Yeah, it's pretty close to the yard and the meter are very similar. Right. Um, and he, he was doing something interesting. So they say, uh, he extended his right arm upward, then just let it fall back down to the ground. And they thought that looks like a, a passed out drunk guy or maybe a barely awake drunk guy, mm-hmm. maybe trying to have a cigarette or something. Right. And they 
I mean, it was remarkable in that they made a mental note of it, but they just kept walking and whatever. Sure. I think his suit uh, being on the beach was probably one of the big deals. Yeah, he was very sharply dressed. Yeah, Not he, just wearing a suit on the beach. Like, the suit he was wearing was pretty nice. Pretty nice. Right? Yeah. Um, and about a half hour later, another couple walked past. And this this time, the guy wasn't moving at all. Yeah. Um, and apparently... He had the, a whole swarm of mosquitoes around his face. And the, the boyfriend says to the girlfriend, that guy must be dead to the world if he's not noticing those mosquitoes. He must just be absolutely wasted. So they they were clearly closer. I guess so. If yeah. they could see mosquitoes on his face, yeah. For sure. Because from 20 yards, it's a tough thing to see. I don't know. I've heard of strange mosquitoes are large. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, the next morning... um it became pretty clear what was going on here, that this was a dead man. Uh, the same jeweler, John Lyons, he went for a little morning swim, as you are uh, to do in Australia in the mornings when you're hungover. And he saw a bunch of people crowded around where the guy was. Right. And it was it was on. It was, this is a dead dude. Yeah. It, the dude was in basically the same position he'd seen him in the night before. There, that, that crowd was like, he's dead. Crikey. <laughs> and... uh yeah, so Lyons is like, wow, that was pretty surprising. And that's the end of John Lyons. Yeah, but very important here in that they are the only people who supposedly saw this body move. Right. Super important. Yeah. So um, within about a few hours, the body is in the morgue at the hospital mm -hmm. and is being examined. And just from the initial examination, there was a, a lot of um, just weirdness that immediately came out. Yeah. Right. So remember, the guy's like sitting up against the seawall. Mm -hmm. um, his legs are extended out. His feet are crossed. Mm -hmm. There is a cigarette, depending on who you ask, either a half-burned cigarette, either dangling from his mouth or on the collar of his shirt as if it would fallen from his mouth. Yeah. Um, and uh, when he was taken into the morgue, the, the doctor said that he was probably dead by 2 a.m., yeah, and most likely when they did the full autopsy, a man named John Dwyer uh, said he was probably poisoned yeah. initially, even though there were no traces of poison, which is a little odd. Right, but the reason he said that is because when they cracked the guy open, this 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 John Doe, who's widely become known as the Somerton Man, um, his organs were all kinds of messed up. Yeah. Uh, he had blood in his stomach mm -hmm. along with his final meal, which was a pasty. Yeah, it's like a hot pocket. Yeah, a delicious hot pocket or a hand pie. Yeah, um, <laughs> that sounds dirty. Hand pie. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a uh, his spleen was in enlarged and engorged with blood. Yeah, that's not a good sign. Yeah, and firm. His liver was giant and bloody. Not unusual for Australians. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that fifty-five gallon drum of Foster. Uh, his pupils were smaller uh, than normal and just quote, unusual, whatever that means. Right. Uh, and then they said that he had a, a little spittle on the side of his mouth that, you know, like, you know. I thought that was a pretty tacky thing to note. Yeah. Just leave the guy alone. He's dead. Like sleepy drool is it, what I thought. If of. I'm pretty, if I'm so pretty that I just have a little bit of spittle coming down my mouth when I'm dead, I'll be more than happy. Oh, you mean if you, if that's the only thing? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, come on, give the guy a break. <laughs> Well, you know, they were doing forensics. Right. 
had to note everything. Yeah. So, and, and indeed they did. And they kept saying, like, this has got to be poisoning. Like, his organs are all kinds of messed up. But there was no trace of poisoning. They brought in this guy named Cedric Stanton Hicks. Yeah, they ate the pasty, the hand pie. And they were yeah. Like, Nothing's wrong. Right. They gave it to Eugene, <laughs> and he was still standing afterward. Yeah, so it's all good. Um, so Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks comes in and says, well, let me, let me see this. And he, um, concluded that it was probably one of two poisons that would have done this kind of damage Mm -hmm. resulted in heart failure. We didn't say that. So they concluded he probably died from his heart failure ultimately. Um, but that wouldn't have left a trace. And he did not feel like it was a, a responsible move on his part to say these things out loud on the record during the coroner's that. inquest. So he Sir said, Cedric. so he wrote them down <laughs> Yeah, and the coroner's like, okay, all right. And picked them up and read. And what he read was digitalis and strophanthin. And Sir Cedric said, he said it. I didn't. <laughs> right. So my conscience is clear. He goes, oh gosh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> that sounds like something that you'd see in a movie. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, added for the drama, but apparently it really happened. Right. So he read those names. Well, I don't know if he read those names, but at least those names were, Recorded onto the record. Right. Uh, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks suspected the strophanthon, although later uh, investigators feel sure it was probably the digitalis. Right. It sounds like it doesn't matter which one it was because they were both kind of used uh, and I think are maybe still used to treat heart disease. Is that true? Yeah. Um, and then you can get them with a prescription yeah. from a pharmacy. I don't know if they're still used. Maybe they are, but they definitely were common at the time. Right. Or obtainable in, in just about every major city. Yeah. Um, so they have an idea of maybe what poison it was, but again, it bears pointing out again and again that they, they, no one has ever found any direct evidence that the man was poisoned. Right. And to this day, 2017 and beyond, if you're listening to this years from now. Yeah. Um, they still don't know how he died. Yeah. And you, they may still be looking because this is one of those, kind of like the D.B. Cooper when we did, it's right. one of those cases where amateur sleuths on the Internet are still trying to figure stuff like this out. And unless we come up with some really um, amazing technologies in the next 10, 20 years or something like that, the, the time is passing quite quickly on this yeah. case and D.B. Cooper as well, where we may never know. It may, may remain a mystery forever unless we yeah. invent time travel. Then somebody will go back and figure those out. So uh, the dude who looks a little bit like Harvey Keitel, if you ask me. He does. Didn't you think so? Mm-hmm. I mean, look up a picture of this guy if you're not in your car. You can look him up. Uh, there are two very famous photos, uh, I guess, from the autopsy scene, uh, just straight onto his face and then sort of, you know, from the side. With his eyes open. Yeah. He looks like Harvey Keitel. He does. He looks like a wasted Harvey Keitel. Which is to say he looks like Harvey Keitel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so he's in a, about his mid forties. Yeah. I guess a younger Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Uh, he's wearing this double breasted suit. Um, I saw that he was wearing a knit pullover with a, a necktie who, uh, and this sounds like we're being, um, too specific by saying the stripe slanted from left to right. But we're not, but we're not, that will come into play. It will. Just hang on to that nugget. Yeah. <laughs> Put that one in your pipe for later. He had no hat, which was weird for that time. Oh, I hadn't run across that, but yeah, I've never seen that there was a hat. Yeah, and they never found a hat, but it would be unusual for a man of the late 40s to not have a hat. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 
Fedoras were huge. I'll bet Panama hats were huge down in Adelaide at the time. Fedoras in Australia were literally huge. They this, were like uh, sombreros. <laughs> <laughs> Made of uh, tortillas <laughs> with melted cheese in the middle. Oh, man. Is that a thing? It was on The Simpsons. Oh, okay. That's Nacho hat. <laughs> uh, what else? He had weird feet? Yeah, wedge-shaped feet, they said. And that his, his shoes seemed to be molded almost to his feet. The real weird giveaway was um, his calves. His calves were remarkable. They were bulbous below the, just below the knee. And the guy who, uh, who performed the autopsy, I think it was Dwyer said, uh, this is like what dancers or people who wear high heels, this is the kind of calves that they have. He said, look at that. He looks like Lena Horn. They went, oh my gosh, it is (laughs) Lena Horn. Uh, yeah, so th- that's definitely notable. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the other thing they found out too was, um, a couple of, uh, physical traits that he had, which will come into play later on. Um, his ear, his Simba, which is the upper, uh, hollow portion of the ear, not hollow, but caved in, caved in? Uh, yeah, the rolled over part up here? No, like just the upper, you know, hole. Okay. And then the lower part. Separated. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've ever done a show on ears, have we? Nope. Yeah, we should. Uh, the Simba is larger than the Cavum, which is um, a, a fairly rare thing. So the, I would guess the Cavum is where your eardrum leads to your eardrum? Yeah, that's where you put your finger when you want to. Right. But if you go, if you put your finger up over that ridge, Does not. that's the Simba? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that would be weird if this one was bigger than that one. Yeah, it's a pretty rare genetic trait, as were... Uh, his strange teeth. Yeah. He had something called hypodontia, which is he was missing his lateral incisors, which are the teeth that most people have between their front teeth and their canines. Yeah. His lateral incisors never developed. So his canines were adjacent to his front teeth. Yeah. And it's, um, what'd you say? Hypodontia. Uh huh. That, that can be as common as like, you never get your wisdom teeth. But in this case, those particular teeth, it was pretty rare. Something like, well, I saw hypodontia in, in, so that would include not getting wisdom teeth, huh? Well, in any teeth not developing is hypodontia. I gotcha. Well, I don't know if hypodontia in general or just this type of hypodontia was it's like two, 2% yeah. of the population. Yeah. It's specifically for those teeth was pretty rare. Gotcha. Yeah. 2% pretty rare. Like everyone's got those teeth. And people at home are like, why are you saying all this weird <laughs> stuff? Who cares? Just settle down, everybody. Settle down. Because yeah. it's all going to come into play. We haven't said anything that will not come back into play. All right. Should we take a break? I think we should. Everybody's getting all riled up. Let's take a break. And then we're going to uh, detail uh, for about 15 minutes what was in his pockets. Yep. <laughs> Okay, Chuck. So we went over the body. Yeah. Now it's time to go through his personal effects. Yes. Which were kind of weird in and of themselves, right? It's all about the details, though, when you're talking about murders and disappearances and things. Sure. Unsolved after 70 years? Yes. You need to pay attention to the details. What kind of podcast cops would we be if we were just like, 
Yeah, he just sort of looked like Harvey Keitel and he was in a suit. The end. No good. <laughs> that sounded like Harvey Keitel. It, yeah, it did, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not bad. It, it, it was, was that was my too. Harvey Keitel on the piano. <laughs> oh man, what a movie. Um, all right. So in his pockets, uh, he had a pack of juicy fruit. He had. Was it juicy fruit? Yeah. Oh, nice. Chewing gum. That's uh, good stuff. He had some matches, Bryant and May matches. Okay. He had, uh, well, he had a lot of tickets in his pocket. He had a, an unused train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. He had a bus ticket from Adelaide to Glenelg. Hmm. And then he had a ticket, a used ticket that said he had come from, uh, Ad- arrived there by, by bus right. from the railway station there. Yeah. From the Adelaide railway. Correct. Yeah. Uh, he also had, um, a pack of cigarettes that this were is weird. army club. Mm-hmm. Army, uh, the pack of cigarettes was an army club pack, but inside were something called Concedas, uh, which was a, a much more expensive brand. So. That makes no sense. Like that's the opposite of the only thing that could make sense, which is he just kept the expensive pack and would put cheap cigarettes in it to look fancy. Right. Unless he didn't want people bumming the expensive ones off of him. So he kept the Ooh. cheap pack or only the a likelier, smoker would have that angle. <laughs> right. The likelier story is that he bummed some, a bunch of cigarettes off of somebody and put them in his, his own pack. All right. Like, Hey man, you got to smoke or seven or seven. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Or perhaps they were poisoned and put in that pack. That's another possible explanation too. Right. So, um, his, his, that was like the extent of his personal effects aside from his clothing, right? There was no ID. He had a couple of combs. Okay. Like hair combs. More to the point, there was no ID. No ID. Uh, no, no wallet. No wallet. No cash. No cash. Kind of odd. For sure. And his clothes were odd in and of themselves, right? So again, he was wearing a very nice suit, but the um, maker's labels of all of his clothes had been, from what I understand, carefully snipped away. Yeah, I saw one explanation for this that made it seem a little less odd, um, which was back then, apparently, people oftentimes would, because there were uh, nice clothes were not scarce, but. You wanted to keep them for yourself. Mm-hmm. So you would write your name a lot of times on your like suit jackets and things. Sure. Uh, and then if you ever went to sell them secondhand, you would flip out those uh, labels. Oh, I see. So that's one explanation. That's not bad. Don't know if that's a reach or not, but at least something could make sense out of that. Yeah. But the other thing could mean that this person was being dumped and no one wanted them to know who they were. It's a possibility too. Or that he didn't want anyone to know who he was. That's another possibility as well. Yeah. That's what a lot of people think that sure. he was trying to cover up his own identity as well. Yeah. Um, his, uh, his trousers, I think had a, a little repair done with orange thread. That will bear with us. <laughs> um, and then that was about it. Uh, they, they, they took fingerprints of the guy and spread around to no avail. Spread the fingerprints around. Right. They, um, they figured out after a little while, I'm not sure when, but this would have been, so November, December 1st is when he was found. This is to, this is like July to us in the Northern Hemisphere, the beginning of July. Oh, geez. So it's starting to get hot down there, right? Mm -hmm. You can only keep a body for so long in the 1940s in summer in Adelaide. Yeah. It's already a hot place to begin with. 
And um, the authorities were like, we, we can't keep this guy above ground any longer. So somebody had the bright idea of making a plaster bust of him. Yeah. And they did. And they kept it at the morgue and then they buried him in a pretty smart way, if you ask me. Yeah, they buried him uh, with this marker. Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, 1st December 1948. And he was buried uh, just in really dry ground. So if they ever needed to get in there, mm-hmm. they could. And they encased him in concrete as well. Yeah. To really like keep him preserved as much as possible if he ever needed to be exhumed, right? Correct. So, um, like I said, they, they took the set of fingerprints and they're still looking for this guy. They buried him finally, but they're like, this is driving us insane. Who was this man? What happened to him? Yeah. Um, so they, they spread the fingerprints all over Australia. They, uh, started to send them around to America, the UK. It just uh, English speaking countries. Yeah. They also, uh, like kind of before they, uh, got rid of the real body, they brought people in locals right. to see if anyone could identify him. I think afterward, they probably showed uh, quite a few people the bust and they were just trying to do anything and nobody, nobody could recognize who this person was. No, I mean, some people saw like pictures of the bust or the, the death pictures that are famous now in the newspaper. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that kind of looks like Uncle Ted. And then they go in and see him and be like, it's not Uncle Ted. Right. Um, And so this this the fact that this is becoming a an weird unsolved mystery already like just quickly after the case started to capture the nation's attention a little bit and the police the 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 South Australia state police mm-hmm. were not shy about publicizing stuff as needed right like as they developed breaks in the case they would tell the newspapers about it and the newspapers would tell the rest of the country so it became a pretty big sensation in Australia, so much so that a lot of people are just basically take it for granted that the man was not Australian. Right. That were he Australian, some more several people would have come forward because the case had that much exposure nationally. Yeah. And I am just <clears throat> guessing here, but I imagine in 1948, this part of Australia probably wasn't there weren't like millions of people living there. I don't know how small of a town it was, but right. I don't think it was like some huge city, was it? Well, yeah, Adelaide's the capital of South Australia. Yeah, but is that how big was that in 1948? You think there was like at least 500 people there. <laughs> okay, at, I'm going to say at the minimum, someone's going to write in and tell us so. All right, That's... and they're going to be mad that we didn't know. No, Australians are nice about things usually. Yeah, they are, aren't they? They are. They're the Canadians of the South. <laughs> so. uh they decide, the cops decide very smartly, um, you know what, we're going to widen this investigation. We're going to see if anywhere in town someone has found something. There are any possessions that this guy might have left behind since he was just found with what was in his pockets. Mm-hmm. Surely there's something. And in fact, there was. Uh, they discovered that there was a suitcase, brown suitcase, and a cloakroom that was left there on November 30th, which was uh, the night before the morning that he was found dead. Yeah. The first time he was seen on the beach was November 30th. Big lead. It was. And because he had that ticket that showed he had taken a bus from the Adelaide Rail Station, that was one of the first places detectives went. Yes. Uh, and they found this suitcase um, that had been left there, like you said, on November 30th. And inside, um, there was some stuff that linked it to the guy. Yeah, I mean, it was full of stuff. Um it was clearly someone who was traveling mm. 
a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, there were uh, lots of clothes, uh, shirts and scarves and underwear and pajamas and handkerchiefs. Uh, there were two pairs of scissors, uh, one broken pair, one in a sheath, um, like a shave kit, mm -hmm. screwdriver, um, lots of just normal travel things, razor, razor strap, all the junk you would expect. The multiple pairs of scissors is a little weird. Thread. But the thread was the big one. Orange thread? Yeah, barber, not Australian brand, barber thread. Yeah. Which uh, perfectly matched where his trousers were stitched. Right. So it's got to be him, right? That's the thing that really links him with the suitcase. Um, there was also some stencils for stenciling cargo. Yeah, that was a little weird. Very weird. Um, and there was a suit jacket that had a uh, what's called a feather stitch. Um, well, stitching. It's the lightest stitch. Right. And <laughs> they're like, we don't do this in Australia. We don't even have the, the sewing machine that can do this in Australia yet. Yeah. A tailor said, this is an American coat. Yeah, with their feathers. Right. We use a hammer stitch. <laughs> right. Uh, and then <laughs> inside some of these clothes uh, was, was the name Keen, because I told you people wrote on their clothes a lot. It said T. Keen, uh, T. Keen, mm -hmm. K E A N E or K E A N. Right. And the best cops could figure is they, someone did that to, to sniff everyone off the case. Right. Because they looked around and there was no T. Keen or any Keen no. that they couldn't put their, their fingers on who was missing. Correct. Um, and the tie years later, like the cops at the time didn't know this. I, I wonder if they noticed that it was slanting one way or another. I don't know. But the, um, they probably just knew it looked weird for some reason they couldn't put their finger on. Yeah. But at the time in Australia, the, um, the ties slanted left to right and this guy's tie slanted right to left. And that was the style in America. It's like everything's opposite. Isn't that so weird? Yeah. Summer's winter and winter's summer. Flush the toilet goes in a different direction. I think that's an urban legend. No, I think that's true, right? No, I did a, a something on it. Really? Yeah, I think it's an urban legend. It's really it has to do with um the uh the shape of the drain. What? Yeah. Man, that's I'm what I, I was so looking forward to pooping in Australia. <laughs> now I have You can still do it. Well, I'm you probably should actually while we're there. I'm going to, but okay. I'm, I, I'm not. The joy is is dead. It's yeah. gone. Well, just don't watch it flush. Yeah, but you might be better off actually <laughs> in this way. I've just been used to my poop turning in a, such a direction my whole life. I was really ready for something new. All right. I'm sorry. So the tie is opposite. They said this is an American tie, like you said. Yeah. Uh, and then they brought in. Um, and actually, we should say those were Internet sleuths. Like, oh, really? Within the last. 10, 15 years who figured that one out. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, good for you, Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, in April 1949, police brought in a dude, an expert pathologist named John Cleland. And this was a big deal. Apparently, the cops in South Australia were not as thorough as you would think because they didn't even check his little pocket watch pocket, the little pocket inside your pocket. Yeah. Uh, because there was a really key piece of evidence rolled up in there. Yeah, this one... Broke the case wide open, it seemed yeah. like it would. 
There was a little scrap of paper rolled up very tightly in this pocket and written on it in some pretty fancy typesetting were the words Tamum Shud, T-A-M-A-M-S-H-U-D. And the cop said, what is this? Yeah. First orange thread. Now some weirdo words rolled up in this guy's pocket. What is this? And John Cleveland said, you dopes. It's called a lead. <laughs> you didn't check his pocket in his pocket. Right. They said no. So they would figure out in a little while, by a stroke of luck, it seems, that um, tamum shud means it is finished or it is done, or in this case, the end in Persian. Correct. Yeah. Sounds very uh, random and out of left field that anybody would know this, but a reporter uh, working the police beat there said, named Frank Kennedy, said, no, that I I know what that's from. <clears throat> that's from a 12th century book of Persian poetry called Rubayat uh, of Omar Khayyam. And that just sounds so out of left field. But in fact, that book had been translated by an English poet named Edward Fitzgerald. And it was kind of a big deal once it was translated into English. Right. So it wasn't like just so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Obscure. Right. Uh, that nobody would know what it was. No, it was extremely popular in the in the west yeah. after that i I think even in america like there's a peanuts comic strip that makes reference to it even whoa there's a big it was one of those things where like people might not know about it but there are plenty of people out there who did and and one of the reporters recognized it right yeah so they realized then that they needed to find the copy of the rubiat that this came from and they started looking and looking and looking and they couldn't find it. So the state police did what they had been doing all along. They went to the newspapers and they said, hey, we found this weird scrap of paper. It says Tamum Shud. We're told that it comes from the Rubiat. Yeah. And specifically, it's the last words of the Rubiat. Right. The last words of the last poem. Right. Yeah. Um, and go go to it, media. And the media went wild and let everybody know. And it turns out, so this is April when they found the, um, the scrap of paper. Mm -hmm. And in July, they got another break based on finding that scrap. A guy came forward and said, you know what? I found this copy of the Rubiat in the backseat of my car, which had been parked by Somerton Beach yeah. around the time the man who was found on Somerton Beach was found. And I have no idea whose it is. It's just been, I put it in my glove compartment. It's been sitting there until I read this article in the newspaper. Yeah, presumably <laughs> uh, his windows rolled down or his car was unlocked. And who, whoever ripped this thing out, because they did find out that part was ripped out from mm -hmm. his book, Yeah, just tossed it in the backseat of this guy's car. Right. Not very smart if you're trying to cover your tracks. No, but maybe you're not trying to cover your tracks. Exactly. Right? So they now have the copy of the Rubiat that the scrap of paper that came that was found in the Somerton man's trousers came from. Yeah, which by all accounts is a one of a kind printing, right? Yeah. Like a one-off. Yes. And not an edition of hundreds, like a single printing of this one book. Right, but supposedly it's part of an edition. I can't remember which edition it was by this printer. But for years, people have been trying to track down a copy from that edition and uh -huh. they couldn't find it. Well, somebody finally found one. They're like, this is not the exact same book that the, the cops found with the Somerton man or yeah. associated with the Somerton man, which is a very odd thing. Totally. Um, so in this book, 
they get another huge break. This breaks the case open even further, right? They're like, surely we're going to figure it out now. Yeah, this was huge. They found uh, two local phone numbers. Uh, one was a bank phone number, which didn't lead to much of anything. And another one, X3239, uh, belonged to, well, they found a couple of things. They found this number that belonged to a woman, a nurse mm-hmm. yeah. uh, named uh, Jessica Thompson, who we'll talk about in a minute. And then they also found, um, you know how we did our, uh, we did our episode on spies. And one of the things sometimes spies would do would have these throwaway pads mm-hmm. that they would literally write things on and you could make an impression such that, you know, it's like the kid's trick where you rip that page off and you have what looks like a blank page, mm-hmm. but it's the impression of what was written above it. And in this little kids will use a pencil to see what it says. But in this case, they used a UV light to see what by all accounts is a five line code. Right. And the the code's pretty odd. Yeah, I mean, I think we should read it. It'll sound like gibberish, but if you're into code breaking, you probably already know about this one. Sure. But if not, here we go. All capital letters, line one is W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. Second line, M-L-I-A-O-I. That was scratched out, interestingly. Mm -hmm. Third line, W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. Fourth line, M-L-I-A. Again, that's repeated. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, B-O-A-I-A-Q-C, and finally, I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B. So go break it. Right. <laughs> the eagle has landed at midnight. Which they basically said that. Go break it, and no one could. No. Um, no one has. Yeah, a lot of amateur code breakers, because, again, they went to the media, like you were saying, um, go break it. And a lot of code breakers tried and failed. And then um, they contacted the Australian Naval Intelligence Service, and they tried and failed. Yeah. And either the Naval Intelligence Service or later um, sleuths concluded that it was for there's too little information to ever break it, that you didn't have a key that you needed to have. Um, and then it may have been as simple as the first letter of a list that he was trying to remember, right? Yeah. Uh, because apparently they bear a, a, a resemblance frequency-wise of the first letters of common words in the English language. Yeah. So it's possible that, like, it's it's a, a to-do list that the guy was just trying to remember, you know, buy these groceries, go see this person at this time, that kind of thing. A lot of letters. Though. It is a lot of letters, and yeah, a lot, lot of people do. say... No, this is obviously a spy code book. Don't be naive. So the, the cops, they, they, there's the code breaking thing that they're doing. And then simultaneously, they're like, well, maybe we should call this local phone number. And they did. And on the other end, a woman picked up and, uh, it turned out, like you said, to be Jessica Thompson. And you want to take another break? I think that's a great place. We're going to take a break and we'll get to Jessica Thompson right after this. We should say, coming back from break, we just got compliments <laughs> from Matt. Uh-huh. This is like praise from Caesar yeah. on something like this. Look what happened to Caesar, though. Yeah. 
on your birthday. Matt said, you guys are really doing a great job. And Josh said, you didn't tell us that. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to sleep. Uh, All right. So we promised talk of Jessica Thompson. This is a really good lead. Uh, They called her up. She answered the phone. uh, It's a good first step. In my movie version, at least, she answered the phone and went, huh? Uh, she was a nurse. She was married. She had a kid named Robin Thompson. Yeah. Robin, uh, a boy though, right? Yeah. Her yeah. son. Uh, and her maiden name was Harkness. Um, and this was kept private for a lot of years. Her name was, she asked him to keep it a secret. And I read a bunch of accounts, most of which said that, you know, she may have had a few boyfriends here and there, uh, affairs, um, the, a paternity of Robin Thompson was called into question more than once. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that the general idea was that she was probably just trying to keep this quiet to, so she, you know, in the 1940s wouldn't be outed as a trollop. Right. And the cops said, sure, no problem. Yeah. And actually to this day, the uh, state police have never publicly identified Jessica Thompson as the mystery woman whose phone number was written in the Somerton man's copy of the Rubiot. Yeah. Uh, but in 2013, her family came forward and publicly identified her. Right. And even though the police haven't confirmed it, it's been known for so many years that that was probably who it was. Yeah. That again, it's basically taken for granted as a fact of the case that she is that woman. Yeah. Uh, her nickname was Justin, J-E-S-T-Y-N. That's how she inscribed uh, copies of this Rubiot. Um well, and I guess that sort of gives away what happens next. Yeah, the cops are like, okay, okay. We've gone through a lot to get to you, lady. <laughs> Have you given a copy of this 12th century book of Persian poetry called the Rubiat to anybody? And she goes, yes, I have. And the cops are like, oh, <laughs> yes, we're about to figure it out. Yeah. And they said, who, who have you given it to? And she said, a bloke named Alfred Boxall. They said, okay, we'll call you back. And they hung up and ran around looking for Alfred Boxall. Well, yeah, they probably figured, you know, that's Harvey Keitel. Sure. Uh, and they were unfairly dis- to Albert, uh, Alfred Boxall disappointed uh-huh. when they found out he was alive and well. Yeah. In New South Wales. And he said, yeah, I got the book right here. She, uh, she gave them to all her lovers. Right. <laughs> uh, there was speculation that perhaps they, you know, she gave it to him over drinks one night that he perhaps had been one of her lovers. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, and I think that's probably absolutely correct. Yeah. Cause she had inscribed it, like I said, with Justin, uh, and that's how the cops referred to her on their case files. Right. Uh, so they went, Oh, you're alive. Great. And he said, yeah, but I've got the book. Like not all is lost. And it was intact. That's correct. So they said, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. This lead, the lead of all leads that was going to break this case wide open. It, it's a dead end. Are you, are you kidding me? And one of the officers developed a permanent scar from banging his head slowly <laughs> against the wall. That's right. He couldn't be stopped, couldn't be consoled. Yeah. And so they said, okay, a lady, your phone number was in this thing. Yeah. So we want you to come down to the morgue and just take a look at this bust we made of the dead guy. And, um, and they said, also, is there anything else, anything weird happened to you in like the last year or so? And she said, well, the only thing I can think of is that my neighbors said to me once when I came home one day that a, 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 some man they didn't know had called on my house and uh, 
That was it. That's the literally the weirdest thing that's happened to me in the last <laughs> year. Someone knocked on her door <laughs> right. that she didn't know. Her neighbors didn't know. That happens to me like three times a week. Right. Um. So they bring her in to look at this bus. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean. And uh, he was one of the two leads. That was not an Australian accent. No, I know. Okay. And um, I don't know what kind of accent it was. It was mid-Atlantic. But I was not trying to do Australian. Uh, and he said that, quote, she was completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint, end quote. Like, she knows who this dude is. Yeah. She's a nurse. First of all, she wasn't even looking at a body. But she is right. a nurse, so she wouldn't be freaked out by any of this. No, and again, it wasn't even a body. It was a plaster bus. Yeah. Right? But she's like, Ugh. and uh, they go, did you know him? And she goes, no. No, I didn't. Just got some heartburn. And uh, I have nothing more to say about this, so don't ever ask me. And she clammed up. Not weird at all. No, not at all. <laughs> so immediately the cops are like, you know way more than you're letting on. Uh-huh. But apparently they didn't, you know, beat up people that they had in custody to get information out of them. So they let her go and just said, oh, well, I guess we'll never know the answer to this mystery. Yeah, there's a retired detective named Gary Feltis who... Uh, Is it Gary? I thought Jerry. G-E-R-R-Y. Probably Jerry. Yeah, I'm. You've convinced me. That's funny. We we just crossed over to one another's side. Again. Uh, so he took up this case later in life and... um. He actually interviewed her in 2007. He said she was evasive under questioning. Yeah. And like this lady knew something. Yeah. And again, this guy was him. He's a, a hobbyist amateur sleuth on this case. Love those guys. But he had 40 years experience as a detective in Adelaide. So mm-hmm. he knows questioning people. Have you seen the Netflix documentary series, <clears throat> The Keepers? No, I haven't even heard of it. It is about a, a cold case uh, murder of a nun mm-hmm. um, in the 1950s? No, 1960s, I think. And uh, there, there are these amateur detectives that have been working on this all these years, these two women in particular, uh-huh. that were students of this nun at school that are just amazing. And like, Is just it a- really get an appreciation for these people who like become obsessed with these, solving these cases right. that aren't even like family members or anything, you know? Is it a, a like drama or documentary? Ten part documentary series. That's, oh wow, I got to see that. Oh dude, it's one of the most upsetting things I've ever had to sit through, oh, and that's okay. all I'm gonna say. Okay, I've been gets, waiting for this since I finished making um making of a murderer. Yeah, it, it's better. I think I liked it better. What? Yeah. What? Very disturbing stuff. Wow, I gotta go. So <laughs> you got to leave right now. <laughs> yeah. So hats off to you, uh, amateur sleuths out there for sure for for getting in the way of real police. No, for for doing work that real police. These are cold cases that yeah, they're hard pressed to get information anymore. Yeah, in most cases. No, it's true. So um, I was just kidding. Sniffing people off the case after the cops say, eh. right? And I was kind of mad not to get too derailed by this that. These cold cases just sort of stay um, cold. Yeah. But then you think like there's, you know, you can't just concentrate on a 40 year old murder case. And there's so many current things you got to be looking into. Plus, it's hard. <laughs> it really is. Um, all right. So back to uh, Thompson, evasive under questioning. Yeah. Um, later on, her son, Robert, I'm sorry, Robin, like we said earlier, 
uh, he started looking into it, got really interested at, uh, in trying to figure this thing out. Oh, he did? He did. I didn't know that. And he turned out to be a professional dancer. Yes. With the calves of Lena Horn. Yep. And the Australian Ballet. Right. And hypodontia in exactly the same way that the Somerton man had. And he had the same ears. Yeah. So a lot of people, again, there's something that hasn't been proven, but most people take as conclusive fact that Robin Thompson, son of Jessica Thompson, Mm -hmm. who didn't know the Somerton man, supposedly, was the son of the Somerton man. Yeah. What I saw was between the ear and the teeth. Um, they put odds for both of those things at about it's quite a range between one in 10 million and one in 20 million. Okay. But let's just say it's one in 10 million. That's still pretty Say good. it's one in a trillion. <laughs> at that point, it's the same thing, basically. So eventually, uh, another, was it the same amateur sleuth? Not Jerry. Derek Abbott is oh, a okay. different sleuth. They're arch rivals. It's hilarious. They hate each other. <laughs> Um, he got involved and said, you know what? I'm going to get Robin in here for a DNA test. Um, Robin's a him, but it says here her. He is a him, right? No. Uh, Robin's daughter was the one who took the DNA test. Oh. Robin is long dead. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you know, no, I think I had it backwards in. I don't think he got involved in trying to figure it out because he's dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's why I was like, I was kind of surprised, but. Gotcha. So he got her daughter to take a DNA test and then trace back the paternal lineage, which would have been um, possibly the Somerton man. Right. Who, by all accounts, seemed like he was American. Yeah. Which would have explained the tie, um, perhaps the thread. Yeah. Uh, and what else? The fact that no one in Australia could identify him. Yeah. Or was willing to identify him. Yeah. Um. So the the... The only thing left then after that is, okay, well, somebody just dig up the Somerton man. Like and, he buried him in such a way so we could do this. Right. Well, it turns out in Australia, from what I saw, there are two reasons that a judge will let you exhume a body. One is to contest a will. There's no will or estate really in question here. Yeah. And then the other one is to identify a lost soldier, a soldier lost at war. Other than that, you're gonna. It's it's an yeah. up. Yeah, it's an uphill battle getting a body exhumed. And two different times, Derek Abbott, who actually, um, as an aside, married Robin Thompson's daughter. Yeah. Who took the DNA test at his behest? Uh-huh. Um, he petitioned twice to have Somerton Man exhumed, and twice he was turned down because um, obsessive curiosity was not a good enough reason to dig up a body. So he swabbed the inside of her cheek, and that was true love. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I got to get in there over candlelight. <laughs> um, all he right, gave so... her he gave her a hand pie. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so here are the theories. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and start with my favorite theory, which sort of is in here, but not really. Uh, suicide. <clears throat> I think that perhaps. And I, um, I didn't invent this, but of the theories I've read, I like this one. I think that he um, was an American man mm-hmm. who had an affair with um, Jenny Nurse Thompson, mm-hmm. Justin, and went there, traveled there, um, found out she was pregnant, uh, in was rejected, and 
went down and killed himself by poison and was prepared to do so. Okay. And the other things I've read said that he could, you know, the things that don't add up was like the body was found with no like vomit, which a lot of times happen if you are poisoned. Sure. Um, Even if you're not, one of the last things you do as your life is ending is throw up usually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. It's pretty common. No one ever tells you that. <laughs> yeah. At like the you... dinner party, you've never been told that? <laughs> no one ever tells you two things in life, that you poop when you have a baby. And you poop. And you throw up before you die. And you poop when you die, too. And you poop when you die. I think so. I guess that's why Elvis died on the toilet. Yeah, very efficient. He wanted to go out with some dignity. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, oh, man. So uh, where was I? Oh, so he... The thing I read said that perhaps he went down to the shoreline, drank mm-hmm. the poison, right. th- threw that, you know, into the water and maybe like vomited and wretched there and then kind of went back up the beach and laid there to die and, and maybe had one last cigarette possible. or tried to. Very possible. But that's one theory. Another theory is that he died by poison, but that it was murder. Sure. Uh, uh, as this case is becoming more and more publicized, uh, the public came to widely believe that he was a spy and that as more details of the case spread out more and more over the decades, um, this, this vision of a spy ring emerged yeah, it makes with sense. Jessica Thompson mm-hmm. as this communist spy master yeah. who was posing as a housewife and Somerton man was a spy who worked for her yeah. or a rival spy and Alfred Boxall was a spy who worked for her, which would explain why she gave both of them copies of the Rubiot. Mm-hmm. And that actually the copies of the Rubiot were one-time pads themselves, right. which were actually the keys to crack the code. Right. Well, unfortunately, the cops uh, in Adelaide threw the Rubiot that was the Somerton Man's away in the 50s. Yeah, they got rid of the suitcase in the 80s. He could, maybe it was both. Maybe he was the spy who loved her. Could have been. But the the murder theory is that Alfred Boxall murdered the man uh, or she had him murder him. And then they took his body to the seaside. Alfred Boxall was actually confronted with that in the 70s on TV. And he's like, that's pretty ridiculous, everybody. Some people are like, we know you were in intelligence in World War II. It turns out he was like an army engineer or something like that. He wasn't in intelligence. And everyone said, that's just what a murderer would say. Right. That's ridiculous on TV. So, the, right. So the, the idea that the Somerton man's copy of the Rubiot was basically a one of a kind, it mm-hmm. seems, definitely lends credence to the idea that it's possible he was a spy. Yeah. And that code for sure. Um, so that's another big, strong possibility. Here's the thing I saw too. In 1959, a third witness came forward. The share never before revealed story that he was on the beach in the wee hours of the morning and saw a man carrying an unconscious man over his shoulder toward that spot. Huh. But it was dark, could not identify anything, and nothing ever came of that. <laughs> Stuff like that. Give I, me my money for the movie rights. <laughs> Stuff like that, I think it could be either it wasn't him or just, you know, I don't know. You know how people are. They just make something up to get sure. on the news. Yeah. And then I thought the same thing with the hand raising up. Like maybe that didn't even happen. Well, yeah, that was a, that's another thing. Like what I realized from researching this, Chuck, was that this this case has been so muddied with conjecture and false truths mm-hmm. um, that have just spread across the internet that 
like, did the Lions ever re- recant their version of seeing him move? If so, then, right. then maybe he was dead when he was taken out to the beach. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Like, you really have to dive in. But if you, if you want to dive in, this mystery, maybe even more than any others, uh, is just, a, a just a, just an enormously deep rabbit hole yeah. to get sucked into. Because, I mean, even if they dug up Somerton Man and found conclusively that he was, Robin Thompson's father that still doesn't say who he actually was. It doesn't ID him. Or how he died, yeah. And it's just like how this mystery unfolded as the police were investigating it. You can, you can crack the case in one major way and it'll probably lead to a dead end. There's still always this tantalizing mystery that we may never know. Yeah. Somerton man. Tamum Shud. Okay. Good stuff. I just said something in Persian. Uh, if you want to know more about Somerton Man, you uh, should go listen to the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know episode on it. For sure. Or watch it. I'm not sure if it's video or audio. Maybe both. Uh, and you can also uh, check out The Lost Man on California Sunday Magazine and The Body on Somerton Beach on Smithsonian, among many, many other great articles. Yep. And since I said many, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this on accents. And I got to say, we got more email on stuttering and accents than I've seen in a long, long time. For real. Um, I don't know. I think a new accents would be big. Stuttering really hit home with a lot of people, I think. And the, well, there's a, there's a stuttering email too. It's either going to be on the next one or the one that was just released. Okay. Depending on the order. All right. <laughs> so you may have heard it or it's upcoming. Uh, hey guys, uh, listen to accents and I wanted to hopefully set up, uh, set the record straight with Chuck's help. My name is Chris and I'm from New Jersey and I've heard Chuck mentioned a few times that he lived in New Jersey for a bit. Uh, first off, where did you live? What brought you here and why did you leave? Um, I lived in Bernardsville mm-hmm. next to Baskin Ridge, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of near Morristown is the biggest town that you might've heard of. Uh, and not far from the Bedminster Golf Club of Donald Trump. Ooh, la, la. Close. <laughs> um, what brought me there, I lived there after college because it was a free place to live because of a uh, roommate's parents who were out of the country in Australia, actually. It's all coming together. They didn't want to sell their house, so they said, you guys are done with college. You want to live here for free? Nice. And hang out in New York? We said, sure. Awesome. And why did I leave? I left because they came back. <laughs> That'd be weird if I was still living there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, he might be able to confirm my suspicions. People from New Jersey don't have an accent, uh, but if they do, it's a slight New York accent, uh, New York accent, if any. Um, no, you definitely have accents. You're insane. In my opinion, many older adults have moved from New York to New Jersey for uh, the suburbs. I've seen many older people meet and talk about uh, the street they grew up on in Brooklyn or the like. I would uh, like to make like it made clear that no one from New Jersey says New Jersey. That's true. Uh, if anything, that is a New York accent. Chuck, can you confirm? I can confirm. I never heard anyone say New Jersey, mm-hmm. but I cannot confirm that there's no accent because you definitely have an accent in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the things that I noticed is not so much an accent, but people in New Jersey would say button instead of button mm-hmm. or like, you know, words that are split in half like that. Right. They would stop like a hard stop mm-hmm. button. You know what I'm talking about? Sure. Very New Jersey. Okay. And they call everyone kid. Yeah, I knew that. You ever heard that? Sure. Hey, kid, even if they're older than you. 
Uh, anyway, I hope Chuck agrees. Also, I uh, hope he's a fan of pork roll and not Taylor Ham. Uh, I'm a fan of Taylor pork roll. I don't know if that counts. I thought that was the only pork roll. Uh, thanks for the endless amounts of entertainment. I'll be seeing you guys in Brooklyn on the upcoming tour. So, uh, Chris Ortado from Highland Park, New Jersey. Nice. I uh, can't wait to see you at the Bell House. Thanks, Chris. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Chris did, you can hang out with me on Twitter at Josh Um Clark. You can hang out with Chuck on Facebook at Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can send us an email at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>